Welcome to the Kindness Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Harrington, where each week I'll be interviewing game changers who are up to good things in the world, supporting us with health and wellness resources, and ultimately how to live your kindest life. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're at. This is Patrick Carrington. This is Kindness Collective. I'm here with Carrie Quinn. Hi. 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 Excited to have you here. Um, just so that we know, Carrie is a much more seasoned podcaster than me. <laughs> so I just want to get that out there. So I, I don't know, the great equalizer. So thank you for bringing your experience to the mic today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's always lovely. So good. So what's on your mind, Carrie? Oh my goodness. What a great way to start. Yeah. What's, what, what, what's on my mind? What's, what's top of mind for you? Hmm. I am, I feel like I'm at a transition point in my life where I'm trying to make a big decision. Mm. So that's, that's what's top of mind right now. I'm, I have a plan and what I've learned in my life is that I make these adorable plans (laughs) and then life happens and I get to readjust and recalibrate. Um, so basically my life is a GPS essentially. Yeah. Right. And just always recalibrating and recalculating. Mm. So, um, my vision had been for November and December of this year to focus on some writing projects that I'm working on. And that's my adorable plan. And I'm hoping that that keeps going. Um, Mm -hmm. And they have some other opportunities, which are, um, making me think a little bit more about if that's where I want to go right now. I think that's where I think I'm going to stick with it. But I get that little temptation. Yeah. The little temptation to go in a different direction. So, um, so yeah, that's what's top of mind right now. Deciding what I want to do, what I want to be when I grow up. Right. Wow. What a fun, um, for me, never ending process, the never ending story. So you said that you said that your life is a GPS. I really like the visual that that is. So what on your GPS is true north? Hmm. I think I used I used to answer that differently. I used like last week. Like last week, I would answer that differently. Uh-huh. I think I. Um, I have had a lot of time in my life where I have looked outside to figure out where north is, you know, kind of like looking up, where is that north star thing? Uh-huh. And even though I've practiced yoga for a long time, I feel like I've just recently started to ask the question of my own body self. Um, because as it turns out, my body has a lot of information. Hmm. Um, And if I don't listen, my body is really good at reminding me to listen. Hmm. And so I would say now that True North might be looking, listening, paying attention to what my body has to say. Um, Hmm. 
Yeah. How does that how, how does that happen? What, what does that look like? It it has looked a variety of different ways. You know, retrospect is so helpful mm-hmm. to look back and say, oh, my body was doing this when this happened. My body was doing that when that happened. So injuries and illnesses or patterns or sleepiness or being hungry for something in particular, all of these things, I feel like, you know, in Kundalini Yoga, they talk about the body as the teacher, the, mm-hmm. the, the physical body. Mm-hmm. It's called the teacher. Mm. And I think that's true to my experience now. It's it's something I've, I've run away from. I have tried not to pay attention to if I'm hungry or tired or um, what exactly my body would like to eat. I think about what would be the right thing to eat. And mm. by that, that's what I mean by looking outside of myself to say, surely someone out there knows more than I do about how much I should sleep, mm-hmm. how much I should practice, what I should read. Mm. And um, and I think it's been a recent experience the last year or two that I have allowed my body to have a vote. Mm. And now maybe a larger portion of the vote. Mm. How do you, um, how do you poll? How do you, how do you ask what you know what is the, is there a is there a intentional take a breath and count to four or is there like some kind of a process i'm in the middle of something and a decision comes up do is it is it that aware or is it just like you know in retrospect boy i wish i had or how, how does it how does it I think it's all of the above. I started by just looking back over the day. So as a daily practice at the end of the day, saying, what did I overlook? Mm -hmm. Or what did I mute for too long? Or where did I turn down the volume? Mm -hmm. What was trying to come to me all day that I didn't hear? Mm -hmm. And then occasionally I can stop in the middle of something and say, wait, I'm going to pause and just sort of check in. With the GPS. Um, and then take the next right step or reconsider. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's. I love that. Um, where did I turn down the volume? For people that might not be used to what that means, can you say a little bit more about what you mean? Yeah, so I think. Uh, our culture encourages us to turn down the volume on our own experience in order to fit in and be part of the herd. I don't think that's unique to our culture, but the way that we do that, I think, is often to um, assimilate, turn down the volume on our experience. Oh, I'm tired, but I won't pay attention to that until I'm exhausted, until it becomes extreme. Hmm. Or I'm hungry, but I won't pay attention to that until I'm starving. And we we almost brag about things like that, hmm. uh, our, about our ability to discount our own experience rather than embracing it. And maybe this is just my personal bias. It's possible there are other people who spend way too much time embracing their personal experience and not paying attention to the culture. But Mm -hmm. at least uh, what I have to share, which is my personal experience, is that I have a tendency to turn down the volume on um, what I actually need, want, desire, and try to do the right thing, whatever the right thing might be. and so there are two ways to have the right thing. It's possible for the right thing to come from within me, but it's also possible for me to try to meet some cultural norm. Um, and we have these 
silly, um, unachievable cultural ideas. The average family has two and a half children, Mm -hmm. but actually no families Mm -hmm. have two and a half children. Mm -hmm. Um, Unless it's very short. Unless it's very short. Child. Yes. Two and a half children. They have a shared custody. Yes. Every every family on this block (laughs) shares one child. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So... The idea of this artificial average or this artificial norm versus the authentic experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I mean by turning down the volume is not paying attention to my experience and giving more attention to what I think I should be doing mm-hmm. or what the right thing would be or what other people want of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I see that often, that many of us do that. And in some ways that's uh, maybe reasonable to... It's certainly reasonable to consider the interconnectedness of all people and not just act selfishly. Mm-hmm. But maybe we've done ourselves a disservice by not paying attention to our individual needs and being honest and authentic about those first. I think that's actually... Uh, I teach a class that talks about compromise. Uh, many of us compromise in really unhelpful and unskillful ways. Mm-hmm. Right? If we think about where we want to go for dinner, we compromise by... A couple of unhelpful ways. One might be the two of us are going to dinner, Patrick, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, I say, where do you want to go? And you say, I don't care, Mm -hmm. which is never true. Mm -mm. It's never true. You do care. You might not have a preference right now. You might not have the ability to make a decision right now. You might be tired. You might be willing to go anywhere I suggest, but it's not true that you don't care. Mm -mm. So we might do something unskillful where you say, well, well, I don't want to go to Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. And I, now all I can think of is Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. So, and you've limited our infinite options by one. You might ask me to pick three, and then you pick the one that you want. Well, then I might do the unskillful thing of trying to pick three that I think you might mm-hmm. like instead of where I actually want to go. Which is Sizzlers. Which is Sizzlers. Exactly. Again. Again. Wow. I have a punch card. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think... Instead, wouldn't it be great if I could sit and think and know and pay attention to my internal GPS and say, I would like to go here. Mm -hmm. And then you had the opportunity to Mm -hmm. sit down and be fully authentic and say, well, I'd like to go here. Mm -hmm. Only then, when we know and articulate what we want, can we compromise. Mm -hmm. And now we know that I want to go to Chipotle. Yeah. Because that's literally... 98% 98% of the time that you're asking sisters. the question where I want to go, yeah. it's going to be Chipotle. And we know that you want to go somewhere classy. Yes. You know? Mm. And so then we can talk more about it. And you can say, well, what is it about Chipotle? And I can say, I just want guacamole. And you're like, no probs, mm-hmm. Carrie. The classy place has guac. Yeah. And now we've not only had a compromise, but we've built intimacy. Mm. So I feel like this is the thing that has changed for me is being willing to be fully authentic and honest in that way provides an invitation for the other person or the other people in the conversation to do the same thing. And then I get more guac. Hmm. Which is in the end, the goal. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's an interesting thing, this idea of compromise, um, and how I think life circumstances, um, for me have, it weighs differently the the more um, minds are involved. And so um, with two kids and uh, a wife, for example, 
um, the word compromise is a, it, I don't know if it's nuanced or if I'm, or if I'm just recognizing where I have my own excuses about it. Um, because I think that there's, there's, there's a, a place where a, a commitment to something actually limits the type of choices that appear to be available. Obviously we have free range and free choices. So how does, um, compromise inside of, uh, inside of a committed relationship, how is it, is that the same? Is that different for you? For me, I think, I would argue that it still starts with the same thing, knowing uh-huh. and articulating what you want. Yeah. If you don't know and articulate what you want, it's unhelpful for the other person. You can't possibly meet in the middle if you don't know where each person is. Mm-hmm. That's true whether there are two people or 10 people at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, how you go about making the decision about what to do might be different depending on the number of people involved. You may have made some parameters, some agreements already as a pair or as a group. Um, but I think that starting there is reasonable. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of those really unhelpful things that we do is trying to make decisions on behalf of other people. So I try to, if it's say we decide to take turns, say mm-hmm. there's four of us having dinner and we decide every time we go, the, the decision will rotate mm. and that person just gets to choose. If that person doesn't know what other people want, they might start to do that weird thing where they try to guess mm, and say, mm-hmm. well, I think dad wants to go there, so I'm going to choose that and maybe that will make him happy. Mm-hmm. Versus if when it's dad's turn, dad says, this is what I really want. Mm-hmm. I know what I want and this is where I'd like to go. And then when it's my turn, I can practice doing that same thing. Mm-hmm. And then I know it's safe to have my own opinions yeah. and I know it's safe to articulate them. And I know that I might not get mine, but I have done my part mm-hmm. by saying what I, what I'm interested in. Yeah. Uh, and then I think skillful compromise goes on there to know that you don't always get what you want. Uh-huh. The victory is knowing and articulating what you want. Yeah. And then, um, working together. The reason I think this is helpful versus that I pick three, you pick one mm-hmm. or, we just take turns, is that life is full of many more complicated opportunities than going to dinner. Although almost everyone I know has a hard time with the dinner. Mm. It shouldn't be hard. We just go to Chipotle. But Mm -hmm. I understand everybody's different. Obs. Clearly. Yeah. We could solve 98% of the world's dinner disagreements by just agreeing to go to Chipotle. That's going in the show notes just in case anybody missed that. <laughs> I'm hoping that they mm-hmm. send a gift card. Uh, I'm just joking. Nah. But we, we have to make important decisions. Like we have to make decisions about end of life care yeah. for our family members. And I can't say, well, you pick the three things you want and I'll pick the one that sounds right to me. Mm-hmm. We have to make decisions about how we interact in intimate partnerships talk about things where compromise in terms of I pick one, you pick one, or we'll take turns doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so all we can do, and I believe yoga teaches us this, is to best understand ourselves and our part in the bigger piece. And so if we can be really clearly defined in who we are, we're practicing in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we can use the skill, whether we're choosing where to go to dinner or helping a family member, um, at the end of their life. Yeah. Right. Um, 
I think that uh, so much of what loops back to me is uh, revolves in this thing called practicing kindness. Mm-hmm. And um, that kindness is a practice because it is a lot of what I what I hear um, you describe in being authentic in relationship to desire or wants and um, how to have those things show up in relationship to other people. And um, practicing kindness is, you know, a practice of setting boundaries and of honoring boundaries. And um, it's as much a no as it is an invitation. And so can you talk a little bit about how kindness lives for you on a day-to-day basis and how you might um, leverage that practice? Yeah, it is absolutely a practice. I agree. Kindness Mm -hmm. is a practice. Kindness is different than niceness, which we always conflate. Mm -hmm. Our tendency to come, oh, well, I'll be nice. Uh, I'll be kind is different than being nice. I'll compromise. I'm nice. Right. I'll Mm -hmm. just lay over. Uh, I'll give up. I'll Mm -hmm. surrender. I will build resentment at Sizzler for the eighth time this week. Wow. You know, versus... Saying, I'd like to go to Chipotle. Oh, right. we're go- but, uh, but I understand you've had a hard day. Well, I'm happy to defer my decision, but I am going to tell you, eating at Sizzler eight times a week is going to build resentment in me. Yeah. Um, and that would be kind. And I think it would to be To state kind that. Because it's the truth of my experience. And it has nothing to do with you. I'm not trying to belittle you or take you down. I'm just simply telling you what, what that effect, what effect that will have on me. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think, like you said, kindness has a lot to do with boundaries and respecting that other people are having a different experience Mm -hmm. Um, and that it usually isn't about me, Mm. Um, that I could treat them with respect and kindness without letting them stand on me, Mm -hmm. which requires me not to lie down on the floor. Right. Uh, Which is also part of kindness, as you said, articulating my own boundaries and saying, uh, I'm willing to go to Sizzler once a month. Right. I, w- I will happily go with you once a month. Um, I will put on my fancy shoes. Mm-hmm. I will fill my purse with Ziplocs. Mm. And we'll go. Yeah, they have great sides there. That's great. We'll just go. And I will enjoy it with you because it's a shared experience that we've decided to do. And more than that, I'm not willing to do. So if the, if you would like to go more often than that, you go with other people mm-hmm. and you enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have your experience and this is the boundary of what I'm willing to do. And I think that's kind. Yeah. And I think that a lot of us do the nice thing mm-hmm. and we think we're compromising, but we're actually just giving over. Yeah. We're resigning. We're not surrendering. We're resigning to our circumstances and letting people walk on us. Mm which is not kindness for either of us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I don't, I don't know that I hear the same thing as I think there's a way and maybe there's a gray area here where, um, resigning somebody else's choice to me is, I, I, I think there's a, I think there's a gray area between being walked on and letting somebody have their choice. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, but I agree that there's, there's these patterns, especially in long-term uh, relationship that gets built up. And they're pretty um, invisible after a while. And, 
so I think that, you know, one of the, one of the things that I hope comes out of people starting to practice yoga and, uh, is this idea of recognizing that your patterns are stored in your body. They're stored in the body of your relationships. And that when we open our, when we open ourselves up, we might be free to choose something different. Mm. And, um, you know, we're always practicing something. And so, uh, you know, practicing feeling walked on or practicing standing up and not letting that happen. Um, right. Yeah. Or practicing walking on or yeah, practicing walking on all of it. Absolutely. Well, and I don't know why all my examples have to do with food. Apparently that's where I am, but (laughs) you haven't had lunch. That's okay. (laughs) That's because I haven't had lunch. I was in two back-to-back relationships that really affected my relationship with food. I think that's why I use Mm. it as a tool to talk about. Mm. I was married in a relationship with a man for nine years who had celiac disease. Mm. So we made the decision that we wouldn't bring gluten into the house Yeah, because it was poison for for him. And that was a reasonable, thoughtful decision. Yeah, I would go eat bread when I was out. I would go eat pasta. I would do all of that. I wouldn't do it in front of him to ruin his life. Right. Uh, And I wouldn't bring it home because it wasn't appropriate. And then I was in a much less skillful relationship where the other person made all of the decisions about food. And it was a slippery slope Hmm. um, that was based on control and complacency and me trying to not get emotionally in the way or step on anybody's toes. Mm. And at the end of that relationship, I remember driving to Whole Foods and I had no idea what I wanted to eat. Mm. I had no idea what I wanted anymore. I had lost track of what it was like to want Uh because I had been using someone else's compass. Right. To decide. Mm. And I stood there. I mean, I, I think they thought I was stealing things because I just wandered around for an hour aimlessly. Do I want that? Do mm-hmm. I want that? Do I like that? I don't even know. I can do whatever I want. But yeah. I've forgotten how to want. Wow. Which is... What a trippy feeling. A trippy feeling. Yeah. A giant red flag. So if you practice saying what you want... Uh-huh. I think maybe you don't lose track of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I can totally hear that. Well, blessings that you're, you're getting your, uh, your clarity around, uh, you know, food and all that. That's, I love eating. Right. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Humans do do a lot of eating. Multiple times a day. Many times a day. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you start to, um, do this thing called yoga. What was what was that like? So, I went to a cute little elementary school, private elementary school, where we didn't have PE, we didn't have equipment. We were borrowing the classroom wing of a church to mm. go to school, and we needed to meet the state's PE requirement. And my kindergarten teacher actually had been to India and was mm-hmm. like, "Well, I'll just teach him yoga." Mm-hmm. And this is way back in the way back before there were pants and mats and before there were more than three books in the library about yoga. Pre-cell phones? Way pre-cell phones. Wow. Way before that. Interesting. Yeah, before the car phone. All of it. Wow. And, I mean, there were pants. There just weren't yoga pants. Right, right. Good distinction. Everyone wore jeans. (laughs) 
for yoga. We just wore jeans for yoga. We did. We just wore whatever we were wearing yeah. because we were at school. Yeah. So I think there was a lot of corduroy. It was the early mm. 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of corduroy pants. Can imagine. Uh, in the grass. Mm. And so that's that was my introduction. I don't have a clear memory of my first practice, but I do remember being out in the grass, saluting the sun. Wow. You know, no shoes, private hippie school. Amazing. This was in Fort Collins? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And now, now it's a pretty popular thing to have in a school. It wouldn't yeah. be unusual. I'm sure listening to this, you think, well, well, yeah, everyone I know has mm. their kids doing yoga at school or yoga at preschool, whatever. But at, at the time, it was a very unusual thing. So that was my introduction. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then um, I understand you started teaching yoga what might be considered at kind of a younger age. Mm-hmm. Um, how, did that, how did that occur? Uh, so it was my first real foray into codependency. There you uh, go. <laughs> I um, I was taking a dance class as PE in high school, and uh-huh. my PE t- teacher was injured, uh-huh. and she couldn't actually guide the class anymore. But she didn't want to hire a sub, right? Because then she wouldn't get paid. Oh. So she asked if anyone in the class would be willing to teach. Hmm. And so I taught dance twice a week. And yoga once a week. So I started teaching yoga. I no training. Does the school district know about this? I don't think so. They do now. I think there's a statute of limitations. Yeah, probably. It's yeah. been quite a while. Wow. Uh, so I started teaching, and then uh, she wrote me an exception. You weren't supposed to be able to take the same PE class over and over again, uh, but I got an exception so that I could keep teaching wow. yoga. So she would teach dance once she was better, and then she would have me teach yoga for the rest of my high school career. And... How did that, um, how did that yoga teacher reputation, how did that play outside of that class? Were you known as the yoga lady or what, what I can't, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to square that with high school culture and. I think that it still falls into whatever weirdness happens in your childhood you think is normal mm-hmm. until you get older and then look back and think, well, that's really not okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that was very bizarre, mm-hmm. um, an unusual thing to do. I don't remember there being anything special about it. It wasn't a badge of honor. People didn't make fun of me. I think mm-hmm. it was just, here we are. It's Tuesday. We're going to do mm. yoga with Carrie. Wow. That's a first. I've never heard that before. That's amazing. How did that, um, how do you think that affected personal confidence? Um, you know, just being a high school kid and teaching other high school kids being given that responsibility. Was that just normal? Did that did it bolster you in some way? I don't think it bolstered me in any particular way. I felt very much like anyone else. I, um, I think because of my bizarre upbringing in that hippie school, mm-hmm. we had, um, had a lot of responsibility for each other in ways that I don't think are common in other schools. Mm-hmm. So it was a private school. It ended up having basically three groups, of three types of people, um, very gifted and talented people who needed more intellectual stimulation than they would get in a typical school. People who had serious behavioral problems who, again, didn't get the attention they needed in a typical school in the 80s. And those with serious physical health concerns 
that couldn't be met in a typical school. So I remember we would take turns working with one of the girls that was in a wheelchair, taking mm-hmm. her on the playground or taking her to the bathroom. Or I'm, I mean, I'm sure, again, this is not exactly how the world should work mm-hmm. now, but it was very typical. Oh, this person is going to have a seizure. Everyone needs to know how to help Right. This guy, when he has a seizure, here's what you're going to do. Hmm. So having responsibility for one another didn't seem out of sorts. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Somehow that feels um, normal. Right. Somehow that feels really healthy. I think it, I really think that it was to say everyone in this classroom is unique and different. This person has a physical need. This person has this kind of need. This person has that need. And we're not going to highlight any of them and be like, you're the weird kid or you're the... It's just everyone gets to be who they are. And if this person has a seizure, we know that the two people closest to him are going to take these actions and everyone else is going to keep doing their work Mm -hmm. because that's how we do it. Um, And so getting to high school and teaching, I don't think felt... Different school. Different different school. Very different school. Public, Public school. school? Yeah, weird. Junior Private high school. was rough. Yeah, junior high is rough. From, I mean, it's rough for everyone. Raise your hand if it's rough. Right. I raise my hand. Should all We should all go live in a kibbutz. I really do mm-hmm. feel like that's a, that's a good Or solution. work on a ranch. Yes. That'd be good. Digging is really yeah, good. Yeah, a lot of, a lot a lot of, of physical digging. labor. Physical labor. It's an awkward time. So, yeah, the transition was awkward. But then getting into high school and being in that public school... I think I was, I don't know, it'd be interesting to go back and see what what they thought of me. But there were many ways in which I didn't fit the norm. I didn't take a lunch hour ever. I took classes every single class period because um, hmm. I could. Hmm. And Did you graduate early? No, but I graduated with more credits than I think anyone has ever graduated because I also took summer school. What? I know. I just like learning. Wow. Yeah. Strange. I mean... Great. Yeah. Some people like learning and that's okay. It is? I think so. Okay. It's okay for No, me. that's good. That's great to hear. Um, I think uh, it reminds me, your hippie school reminds me of a, um, uh, what do we call it when you bring a bunch of people together? Festival that we created <laughs> called uh, Spark the Fire mm-hmm. back in the day. And we invited all the yoga schools that we knew and we wanted to try and figure out a way to start, you know, working together more. And we brought um, indigenous and Native American leaders to come and speak because we wanted to understand how they have or have not struggled with being different tribes and working together towards a similar, you know, layer or version of representation within the country. And one chief in particular, he was um, a very young guy and and it was kind of renowned about being in his early 30s and the chief of a very remote Alaskan tribe. And he said, um, one of the things that is very different about the way that we grew up from the way that we see you growing up, meaning um, kind of non-native people, is... um, that if we have someone in our midst that has a problem like a mental disability or, you know, you might call them crazy, um, when you live in a place where you have to take a plane to go into and out of, there's no place for crazy to go. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
crazy is a part of you because you are dependent upon each other and you never know when you're going to be stuck with crazy in a position where you you need to help each other to survive and so you have this ability to compartmentalize yourselves here and insulate yourselves from crazy Mm. or from dangerous and so it causes you to have this false sense of uh, empowerment. Mm. But in actuality, um, you're only as strong as the community that you're a part of. And so when I hear you talk about that school, I hear so much of the dysfunction that comes out of our um, modern conveniences and out of our affluence is really um, their dysfunctions of wealth. They are dysfunctions of the separation that occurs when you can afford your own domicile. Right. When you can afford your own car. And so you're not on public transportation. You're not living in an in a, you know, in apartment complex or, or um, you know, a favela or some, something, some other way where you're living together. So um, I really love that story. I, I love that story of how normal it is that so-and-so has seizures, and if you find yourself next to them, this is what you do. Mm. And normalizing our humanness. Right. Um, And allowing our humanness to be there and not have to be hidden. Yeah, not have to be hidden, not having to be put away. Yeah, right. That's really, that's powerful. Um, So you're a writer. Mm. That's a a pretty big title. How does it feel when I say you're a writer? It feels like yes, uh-huh. and I don't know. How does it feel? Let's try again. You're a writer. I am. Yeah. It's something new I think I've stepped into. I've okay. always known I was a writer. I think from the time I was verbal. Right. I've always known. Uh-huh. And I haven't led with that. Uh-huh. I haven't led with that. Right. Um, I've felt like... There needed to be something else that was that was uh, that was standing in front of that, or uh, that was more worthwhile than that. Uh, there's a lot of imposter syndrome, I think, when it comes to being a writer, because what do you know that you could be a writer? Hmm, right. But also, what do you have to offer? What do you have to offer? I think anyone and everyone is a writer if they so choose to be, so long as you're writing about what you know or think you know or the questions that you have, you're a writer. Yeah. That's it. Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. Um, Like if somebody said to me, you're a writer, I think I would uh, resist that. And it kind of goes back to these these things, um, that at some point somebody says something about your writing or somebody says something about your art and you realize, Oh, I'm not an artist. Mm. You know, you, you ask a a room full of kindergartners who can draw me a picture and everybody's hands goes up. You go in front of a, a fortune 500, uh, you know, employee retreat and ask who can draw a picture and you get three. (laughs) And it's just, it's just funny, uh, the way we do that. So, I'm glad that you own the mantle of being a writer and, and um, yeah, I like, I like the idea of being able to own that I'm a writer um, just based on the way that you answered that. Yeah. What do you like to write about? 
I like to write about a lot of different things. The things that get sparked from me end up being classified as um, transformative memoir or mm, teaching in some way. It is the way that I make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. It's the way that I make sense of the world. And so if there's a question I'm struggling with or a question that keeps coming to me, from other people, um, then I will sit down and I will write it out. And it's not even a, well, I wonder if I sit down and solve this. It's almost a, a necessary, it's almost a an instinct that I have to process it in that way. Somebody else might pick up the phone and call someone else or chat with someone or, or go sit and meditate. But for me, there's something about having a pen or a keyboard. It doesn't matter what it is to sit down and process out what I really think about something. Mm -hmm. um, so, opinion and memoir, it's not fiction. Right. Um, or it's not intended to be fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the truth of my experience, I, th I think that what I do is explain things to people, whether it's out loud or um, in writing. Yeah. That tends to be the way that I, I make meaning of the world. Um, I shift perspectives. Mm -hmm. I invite other perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And you have some things you're working on right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I have a memoir uh -huh. that should What's be... What's a memoir? A memoir. It's a book about me. It's a book about <laughs> Carrie. Okay. Uh, no, a memoir should just be um, personal reflections on an aspect of one's life or many aspects of one's life versus a biography, which might just sort of be the chronology of someone's okay. life. Okay. Uh, so, so I have a memoir that should be out early next year. That's exciting. Are you self-publishing? Uh, no. Okay. So that's exciting. Great. And then, uh, I have a book about teaching. I teach a certain style of yoga and so I've written a book about that as well. And that's also coming out next year. Ooh, do, do, do tell. What's the style of yoga? So I teach yin yoga. I know mm -hmm. you're familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, and yin yoga is so different from many other styles of yoga and that it's essentially like elephant seals on the beach hmm. where you lay on one side for a while and you flop over hmm. and then you flop again uh and it's so it's not aesthetic it's not about being perfectly aligned it's about feeling mm -hmm. it's about getting into um connected tissue potentially for me it's more about approaching meditation and sitting with your experience. So very often people talk about the edge of sensation in yin yoga, that you would go into a shape with your body and hold that shape at the edge of sensation where you had a threshold of experience. It's been a great teaching for me because many of us, as I said, are not aware that we're having an experience. Mm -hmm. I don't know I'm hungry until I'm starving. I don't know right. I'm tired until I'm exhausted. Hmm. So instead of curling our toes over the edge of the canyon, we are dangling in by our fingertips. Right. And we do what we do on the mat, we do off the mat. So there we are in the yin yoga practice, really trying to feel it, like really trying to get it. Mm -hmm. And that's not a helpful tendency. So learning how to back out of that extreme nature and come back to just curling the toes over and feeling the beginning of sensation, reacquainting oneself with the full spectrum of sensation, and 
Remembering too that using the canyon analogy, you could sit back in the van. You could be way back and be like, I see the canyon. It's at the edge is over there. Right. I'm in a comfortable place. I've got my seatbelt on uh, and it's over there. And that's an, that is a worthwhile choice too. So I think yin yoga gives us the opportunity to experience the edge and to go further towards the edge or back away from the edge in a very different way than other styles of practice. And I like to teach it that way. I think it also helps us pay attention to sensations in the body. Mm-hmm. So this is why it has been such a transformative experience for me. Rather than looking to the teacher and saying, am I doing this right? And the teacher saying, well, you should put your arm over here and maybe bend this a little bit more and engage that muscle a little bit more. The teacher is more like a midwife than a master mm. and has to say, I don't know. How does it feel? Mm-hmm. And then the teacher, hopefully having some more skills, asks the student, gives the student a vocabulary of what feeling feels like. Uh, Because when we turn down the volume on sensation, when we're just either aware of sensation or not, we don't necessarily have the vocabulary to talk about it. So in the practice of yin, you develop a vocabulary about what does this feel like? Is this tension? Is this compression? Is this burning? Is this stinging? Am I experiencing numbness? Have I lost sensation? Can I feel the clothes on my knees? Like, do I have feeling in my knees? Mm. Can I feel the tightness there? What What is the sensation that I mm. have there? And now that I'm aware of it, would I like to make any changes? Mm-hmm. Mm. So, also elephant seals. That's great. Yeah, for sure. What's the cost of sitting in the van? I'm not sure what you mean by the cost. What do you give up by seeing the edge way over there and sitting in the van? Well, I think there isn't necessarily a cost. It depends on the person and the experience. For some people, sitting in the van is an appropriate place to be. Sometimes in our lives, we need to be back away from the edge and we need to feel safe. So the benefit of being in a van is feeling fully supported, safe, get comfortable there. Mm -hmm. Then once you feel that, you can know where you are and make a different choice. So um, if you just live your whole life in the van, that's your tendency is to back away from the edge. Something gets uncomfortable in a relationship and you run away. Mm -hmm. Something gets uncomfortable in your practice and you quit. Something gets uncomfortable in your life and you make a dramatic change is you never get the full experience. And then there are other people with the tendency to be in the canyon fully, Mm -hmm. dangling by their fingertips clinging to the edge of life as life goes by very, very quickly and feels extreme instead of the beauty of sitting on the edge and realizing that you have a choice is really the thing for me. Not necessarily being at the edge, that's not the point, but remembering that you have a choice that you can add more or less intensity at any point in any aspect of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a value proposition at both. Yeah. Uh, dangling over or um, being in the backseat of the van. Right. So if you know your tendency is to be in the backseat of the van, your your work might be to get closer to the edge sometimes. Yeah. If your tendency is to be in the canyon, maybe your work is to sit in the van for a little while mm-hmm. and try something a little bit different and make those decisions. Um, remembering that you have the choice, that you're not committed to the van, you're not stuck over the edge. And you get to make the choice. 
Are you in the van in some areas of your life and dangling over the canyon in some areas of your life? I'm much more of a dangler uh-huh. by nature. Um, I'm much more of a dangler. And I think our culture generally pushes us in that direction. Uh-huh. And there have been times when I have been back in the van. Usually what happens is... I get ill injured or something like that. And then I am stuck in the van. Mm -hmm. So I go, 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 go until I'm incapacitated. Mm -hmm. And then I have to sit in the van for a while and I get really grouchy about that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But there have been a few times that I'm developing the skill to choose to sit in the van sometimes. So um, there's a benefit, I think, to the adult timeout. Mm-hmm. There's a benefit to something like I think of restorative yoga as being back in the van because there's some true benefit to remembering what it feels like to feel supported and held and safe. Mm-hmm. And so if you've spent so much time feeling unsupported, dangling, precarious, that maybe remembering that is, is a nice thing to remember. Yeah. A helpful thing to remember. Right. And so... I don't know if they're explicit areas. I I think that for a very long time, most of my adulthood, I was canyon, van, canyon, van. Mm-hmm. And now I'm spending a little bit more time standing on the edge uh, or approaching the edge or realizing, oh, I'm, I've only got one arm over the, the lip of this canyon. Mm-hmm. And I'm... I, I could still get myself out of it. Mm-hmm. I could still get myself out of it, or I could slide down. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so you mentioned uh, yin yoga and um, approaching meditation. Is your yoga practice your meditation, or do you have a meditation practice that you also do? So I do a daily morning uh, meditation and sadhana practice. I. What does that look like? Sadhana, can you kind of unpack that for folks? Yeah, so my daily practice is actually from the Kundalini tradition, and so I'll do um, a quick daily sadhana. So I will. It looks like a lot of wiggling, mm-hmm. more so than sun citations or triangle pose or um, half pigeon or something like that. It's uh, a lot of energetic movements for a few minutes. And then try to sit quietly for 11 minutes. Uh-huh. 11. And, Why 11? Uh, so it's significant in that tradition, which is not a tradition I actually teach. It's just one that I like to practice. I've kept it sacred for myself in that way, that it is a practice. Uh, so that's one increment of time that's significant. Mm-hmm. It's also an increment of time that seems possible for me on a daily basis. I can make a daily commitment to that. I have a hard time making a commitment to something much longer than that. Mm -hmm. Um, But that has worked well for me. And my meditation experience is primarily realizing I'm making lists. Hmm. Yeah. I like to make lists in my head um, of anything, really. So I'll just make lists and then I'll realize I'm making lists and try to stop. Hmm. And I maybe a fraction of a second where I'm not making lists and then I realize I'm making lists again. Hmm. And then I go back and forth. And I have had experiences in a meditation practice in my life where I'm not making, I've realized, oh my God, I didn't make a list for like a little while. Hmm. And I think that's, that's what we describe as true meditation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, 
that's my daily practice. And then in terms of yoga, I think it's such an interesting idea. Yoga is a deep philosophical tradition that has a little bit of wiggling in it. Yeah. So uh, I'm considering myself to be a student of yoga. I think a lot about the different philosophical teachings. And yes, I, I go to asana practices and I do sun salutations and mm-hmm. I do yin yoga practices and restorative yoga practices and, and all of that as well. Um, so that's my practice. Yeah. Um, there's something about making lists that I want to ask you about, and I'm not sure how to say it, but it's, it's something like, what are you making lists instead of? Mm. I think that one of my adorable tendencies is vigilance. Um, I'm prepared. Mm -hmm. I come from a long line of people who survived by being prepared. Mm-hmm. And that's in me, by nature, by nurture, uh, by virtue of my experience, that's one of those things. And so um, in some ways I think it's an attempt to hold on to mental faculties and say, okay, I'm, here I am making lists, I know these things, these are things I know to be true. And then in other times... Um, I don't know that it's my incarnate being that's doing it. I do think there is a strong family lineage-based influence, that there is some bigger part of me that is um, that has that skill to offer the group. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes that skill gets out of whack mm-hmm. and becomes an adorable and unhelpful tendency. Yeah. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Mm. Good job surviving. Thanks. Yeah. It's what we what we do we're stoked about that um so you've been a studio owner Mm -hmm. business owner Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about um what that's like to hold space and tell us a little bit about your business is it still operating so i've sold my interest in the business but it is still operating okay what's it called uh, so it's a yoga studio in Colorado Springs called Enso Prenatal. Mm-hmm. It's a prenatal. E-N-S-O? E-N-S-O. Yeah. So the website, I think, is still E-N-S-O-M-A-M-A.com. Ensomama.com. Uh, it is a prenatal and postpartum yoga studio. Okay. And it's a little bit of, of an interesting story the way that it came to be. So in college, I studied neuroscience and anthropology. And my focus in anthropology took me to the way that we communicate to people before they have children. Mm-hmm. Got, Say that again. The way we communicate with people before they have children. The way we communicate with people before they have children. Okay. Right. So we tell people that they are going to be, I'll say, good or bad parents, based, or they're going to have a good or bad birth experience based on that we condition people. Sure. So if you go take a birth class, so I studied my... My thesis was about prenatal education classes. Mm-hmm. If you go to a class that tells you about everything that could possibly go wrong, mm-hmm. it does not build your sense of competence. Mm-hmm. It builds your sense of fear right. of everything that could go wrong. And so the lens with which you approach pregnancy, birth, and parenthood is one of what could go wrong Sure. and fear. Versus 
if we approach pregnancy as a normal condition of the adult human female, mm-hmm. as not an intellectual process, uh, as something that happens. A discovery. A discovery. As uh, something that happens quite naturally on its own as and as a as an honor mm-hmm. that perhaps we are pregnant birth and raise children with a different mindset mm-hmm. so that was my original thought and then I really wanted to work in that world but I didn't feel like I had street cred because mm-hmm. I don't have any children and so I signed up for a prenatal yoga teacher training with Katie Wise and Kristen Warner. Hmm. And I remember sitting in the circle the first day. I did it just to build my resume, just yep. to build my teaching resume. Katie Wise looked right at me and said, you've all been in a, a mother in another lifetime. Hmm. And I was like, I'll buy that. I'm I'll, in. I'll buy that. Check that box. That's all I needed. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> Those are the words I needed to hear, the permission that I needed to say, okay, and I went back to Colorado Springs and I said, I want to add a prenatal class at the studio where I was teaching. And they were like, oh, we tried it. It didn't work. And I was like, I'm going to do it. Yes. So I did. And it was wildly successful. Mm. And so then I met uh, my business partner. Someone else suggested that we connect. She studied also with Katie and Kristen. And so we business dated for nine months. We talked about what we would do and how yep. we would open a studio. And we opened the studio. Um in a place where there's not a lot of yoga and prenatal yoga is really a weird idea. Mm-hmm. And it was a very successful place in the sense that the business was solvent, in the sense that we were able to serve and support a community of people in shifting their perspective about birth. Yeah. And so... Um, we chose the name Enso because an Enso is a Zen meditation, right? You dip your paintbrush in paint and then you draw a circle and then you sit and look at the circle. And mm. it's perfect and it's imperfect. Right. And we think that that's the experience of motherhood. And every day mm. it's perfect and imperfect. Just as what it is. Mm. And, you know, people would Google prenatal yoga and they would come and we would have these classes with women of all ages and all backgrounds. We would sit and practice in a circle and talk the whole time. So very different from other kinds of yoga practices, sure. more like a processing group. Um, and then, you know, they don't stay pregnant. They so business, Is that true? Business-wise, it's not a great endeavor because uh. you get a limited amount of time. But then they were like, well, what, now we have babies. Could, could we bring our babies? And so we started offering mom and me yoga and same idea. Now it's just a hot mess, you know. Yes, yes. we're practicing in a circle, but people are nursing or changing diapers or throughout the course of class there's no such thing as late to mom and me Mm -hmm. you just show up when you do and you do your best and I really do believe that that has had an incredible effect on the women that came to the classes and it it, it became more than that so we taught birth classes and breastfeeding classes and potty training classes and Mm -hmm. feeding all kinds of stuff so it was a hybrid space um and it's still successful and it's still in existence and it's a great little place in Colorado Springs and the seed event. So because Colorado Springs is such a transient community, there's so many military bases. Sure. Lots of people moved other places. They take that little seed of Enso with them. And they've started these not prenatal yoga studios, but these, you know, moms groups, giving people the ability to, like you said, go away from that isolation mentality mm-hmm. of I should mm-hmm. do this all myself and say, I want there to be a community, so I'm gonna make one. Yeah. 
and I'm going to make it okay to say, oh my gosh, I'm the worst mom in the world. My baby rolled off the bed today. And everyone else can look at me and be like, me too. Mm-hmm. Or I can look and see that my kid's not wearing matching socks. Mm-hmm. Other people will get it and, and just meet in a different way. So, so to me, that's the biggest success. Uh, owning the studio was... It was great and terrible at the same time, just like anything, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Because you get to make all the decisions, and you have to make all the decisions. And Wouldn't it be great if I could make all the decisions? <laughs> oh, shit. i got to make all the decisions. And I think, you know, there are big and terrible decisions that you have to make, and then there are simple, terrible decisions like snow delight. What do you do on the snow day? Is it snowy enough? Is it too snowy? Do we go? Do we not go? Do we have retail? Do we have scholarships? Do we give this person a refund? Um, And in our case, we had the great benefit of talking about the full spectrum of life because not everyone stays pregnant. Mm -mm. And not all babies are born alive. Mm -hmm. And these things come into the room. Mm -hmm. And they came into the room. Mm. And it makes the business decisions seem so insignificant. Right. And so there was a great benefit in that respect, that we were able to talk about the gravity of life Mm -hmm. and model that gravity for other people. They would come to us if there was a stillbirth and say, oh my gosh, this woman in my class, how do I support? And we were like, here's how you support. Mm -hmm. These ways. Thank you for asking. Do it like this. which makes choosing which flavors of tea to carry as retail items or um, what to do about the parking closure or the water main break seem like trivial decisions. Yeah, right, right. Beautiful. Um, What would you say to somebody that is in the world of health and wellness that wanted to start their own business? I think I would suggest that they take their time Mm -hmm. and that they learn about business. Mm. And how how do you, how would they do that? Well, there's a a variety of ways. So I have a master's degree in nonprofit management, which is very similar to an MBA Uh in terms of all of the, the process and procedure. So we had that benefit. Um, But there are other people who have business experience that might be useful. Mm -hmm. And there are small business development centers. I know the University of Colorado has many little spots where you can go at no cost Mm -hmm. and learn about basic things like how to incorporate a business and sales tax and hiring the right lawyer for the right things Mm -hmm. and the implications of signing a lease. There's that old adage that most restaurants fail because they're run by chefs, mm-hmm. just to bring it back to the food. Yeah, again. Again. Dysfunction junction. I know. And I think a lot of wellness businesses are less successful than they could be because there isn't a consideration or a level of reverence for the business nature of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be a level of consideration and reverence for both sides. So it's beautiful to want to open a yoga studio or 
uh, massage business, to be able to create your artwork and sell it for people. And it's prudent and respectful to understand how you work within the bigger context of the world. Yeah. And so, um, is money spiritual? money spiritual I think it can be I think that I think of breath as an example of the life force with which we've been entrusted I think money is an example of the life force with which we exchange so it can be a spiritual experience to engage in that way not to try to collect as much and stuff it down. That's like trying to breathe as much and hold your breath as much as you can, uh-huh. but to allow the free flow of energy in all directions. And so having some appreciation for how that works. You know, one of the things you learn in yoga is how to breathe differently, that right. you can manage your breath differently. I've learned a lot in the past couple of years about how to manage money differently, mm-hmm. uh, which has felt more liberating and empowering for me in the same way that learning how to breathe is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it could be. Yeah. Uh, is it fair to say that money is a practice? I think the relationship with money is a practice. Uh-huh. Money is just an imaginary vocabulary that we've chosen to use. Uh-huh. But I think the relationship that we each have with money uh, reflects the other aspects, just our tendencies like anything else. Right. Our tendencies with money are the similar with our tendencies with sex, with our tendencies with food, with our tendencies in any other aspect of our life. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it ends up being really concrete. And we could get lost in a rabbit hole of spreadsheets and numbers. Um, but the relationship with money itself versus the dollars and cents might be more of a spiritual experience. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, so we're doing a... Um a real, for, for me, for us, a, a deep dive into belonging, inclusivity, and diversity at our, at our yoga studios, kindness. Can you talk a little bit about um, how it is for you as a, um, as a woman in, in, the, in the world called yoga studio? There, um, it's, it's more of a female-led um, industry how that feels being a woman in a female-led industry versus um, being out in the world as a woman. Mm. And if there's if there is a distinction there for you, or do you notice that it's a place where you are seen differently than you might have been seen in other business contexts or life contexts? It's a good question, and I don't know that I have a different experience of it. Um... I don't know that I would say that it's a a female-led industry. I think there's a lot more women teaching yoga than there are men teaching yoga. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the positions of power, uh, the famous teachers, the big names, the influences may not necessarily be disproportionately female. I don't know. I don't think of of it as being a female-led industry. Uh Um, Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I would say a lot of the um, OGs of the industry are men. Mm. I'm curious to see how that will 
we're, it's so young. It's really, you know, some of the original people are still alive right. in terms of what I would consider to be original. Um, some of the pillars, so to speak. Mm. Um, and um, I think that I see it as a, as a um, woman-led industry because women are boots on the ground. Mm. Women are in our studios the representation of teacher more often than not. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's unique in that way in the world of a business that so many of the leaders on the ground are um, women. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I guess my question was, was around, do you feel seen differently? Um, yeah. In, in the space of the yoga studio. And, and I, I don't even know if this is true. It's, it's, it just occurred to me as we were talking mm-hmm. around that idea of diversity and inclusivity and belonging. Um, and I think that if you talk to a woman that was on wall street, for example, or trying to come up in tech, they might have a very different answer about how seen they feel in their industry. Mm. I think I have an interesting relationship with it. Um, I am a very small, slender, um, white woman, and I teach yoga, and I think that there, I almost feel like I have to work harder because I feel like I'm teaching yoga and I'm not there to illustrate the physical representation of who I am. Mm-hmm. When I think of the influencers in the broader context, if you were to ask someone who doesn't practice yoga what a yogi looks like right now, mm-hmm. I think they would suggest somebody whose body looks like mine. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like I have to fight against that without disembodying who I am. I'm not a yoga teacher because I'm a small, thin, white woman. Mm-hmm. I'm a yoga teacher who happens to be in this body. And I try very hard not to highlight, so if you look at my social media, it's not me doing yoga poses. It's me teaching. Mm -hmm. It's my back. Mm -hmm. For the most part, it's what I'm looking at, Mm -hmm. not what I look like, because Mm -hmm. that's what I'm there to teach. And so I feel like being a woman standing in the front of a classroom, I have this paradox of wanting to teach without saying, also, how do I turn down the message of look like me mm-hmm. that comes from the rest of the the media or the, the pop culture. Yeah. So that's more of where I go when you talk about that mm-hmm. than feeling like an influencer. And so my personal role or mission is to lead with my teaching and not with the form or shape of my body or what my body can do. Um, and it's something that I wrestle with how do I represent myself Mm -hmm. Um, because I choose to represent I hope to represent myself as someone who has something to say Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um how do you feel like um you want people to like if there's is, is there something that you want people to 
feel, not like if they don't feel this way, they're doing it wrong, but if you could impart um, a feeling on your students, what would that be? I just want them to feel better Uh after class. I would like for people to leave feeling better than they got there. Um, That might be physically, that might be mentally, emotionally, spiritually, that might be in sense of community, but um, I often say I hope to earn the seat of the teacher, which means that instead of just standing at the front of the room and performing, that I that when people leave, they feel like it was money, time, and energy well spent. Uh-huh. They feel better in some way. Um, and for me, more of that is perspective than physical feeling. So maybe they're more aware of the way they feel, or maybe they did have an emotional experience in class. Maybe they learned something or their perspective shifted. But in whatever way that is, that they would report their life having been a little bit better for having spent that time in the class. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm sure they do. Most of the time. And otherwise, I just bring chocolate, so that helps. That helps. Bribery. Yeah. That's awesome. I like that, You didn't feel better? Here's some chocolate. There you go. Now you feel better. Um, Are you optimistic about where we're going? As a species? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, (laughs) as a group? Hmm. Yes, I think I have a choice. I can choose to think about all the ways that it won't be great, or I can choose to focus on the ways that it will be great, Mm -hmm. how I would like to invest the life force that I've been entrusted with. Mm -hmm. And so I hope to use it more for good than for evil, uh, which I think therefore has to mean that I I have hope for Mm -hmm. who we are. I think that we're in a bit of a dark time, generally speaking, and that we're on the way up. Um, I think of this often when people talk about all of these yoga teachers, you know, all the glut of yoga. Right. There's so many yoga teachers. The market's yeah. saturated. It's not saturated, I don't think. Uh-huh. I think it is a response to the need of our time. We live in a time where we are so physically unwell and spiritually bereft that we need as much yoga as possible, even if it's just a little bit here, a little bit there, as much access. So I think that it's actually a sign that... Um, Things are moving in the right direction. That so many more people are called to do something that has a healing influence or has a hopeful influence. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, we don't have ten percent of Denver practicing yoga yet. No. There's not too much yoga. No. Um, what is the tipping point for a group of people where better decisions start to be made? You know how many how many um, how many people um, who experience the results of doing yoga in you know what could be considered to be intensely for a short period of time like a yoga teacher training um, how many people doing that lead to the aggregate making better decisions I don't, I don't know what that I don't know what that number is 
but um, yeah, I I want yoga to be normal in the way that gas stations are normal all over the place. You know, right. the way uh, we look at refueling stations for our cars, we might look at refueling stations for our hearts and minds and bodies in that way. And just imagining what it would look like if, you know, there was yoga more like a public service. Mm-hmm. Um, can't, can't imagine what type of society might come out of that. It's... Um, yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting fantasy, right? To just populate more of the world with people um, who who breathe. You know, right. let's get real. People who have a spiritual practice of some sort, and uh-huh. I think that we we see that we see that depicted so much in movies, television, books, all of these things. The the post-apocalyptic dystopia. Uh-huh. And there's so much of this dystopia that we are in um, when people are living in isolation and mindlessness. And so there's so much opportunity then for people to get to know themselves a little bit more and develop a spiritual practice, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... You know, I would love it if my lawyer also had done a yoga teacher training and practiced law. Yeah. And my physician and mm. my acupuncturist and all yeah. of these people had a familiarity, a, a common vocabulary, a common moral compass, or um, even if we didn't share the same values, that we shared a, a way to talk about those values. Right. And a way of self-awareness so that we could say, I know who I am and I know what I want. Mm-hmm. And I know how to compromise or I know all of, I have all of these tools to be a spiritually thoughtful being mm-hmm. rather than a mindless being. Um, so, so yeah, that's my, that's my hope too. Yeah. Yeah. For anybody out there that's listening that doesn't, um, have a spiritual practice or doesn't feel like they have a yoga practice, what, what would you say to them? I think that I think that yoga has a lot to offer and I don't mean the poses Mm -hmm. so if someone were to say well I tried yoga I went on YouTube and I found a video and I moved my body through some shapes and I didn't feel any different I hear that a lot and I think well have you considered going to a place where there are other people doing the same thing? Mm. Because it's a very different experience for me mm-hmm. to be in a community space where everybody is has a like-minded idea, whether their bodies are doing the same thing or not. Mm-hmm. But to have the commitment to show up and do something, um, it removes that isolation from the equation. And solitude is medicine. Mm-hmm. Isolation is poison. Mm-hmm. And getting together with a group of other people, taking a class from an actual person, getting together with two other people and doing a video, whatever that might be, trying something there, reading a book about yoga, mm-hmm. um, moving in that direction and giving it a try for a period of time. So I used to tell people to try three classes before they... Before they, before they quit. Moved on. <laughs> right. 
And I think maybe it takes a little bit more than that. Yeah. So maybe making a commitment to yourself for a time period that feels appropriate to you. So I told you, my meditation practice feels like 11 minutes feels doable. Maybe two weeks feels like a doable trial period. Maybe a month feels like a doable trial period. Right. Whatever that commitment is, but making a decision, committing to that, and then trying it on for a period of time, giving it a real good college try, mm-hmm. and not necessarily just moving your body through shapes, but experiencing some level of teaching, some level of community, some level of engagement, I think has benefits as well. And after you've done that, um, there is benefit to home practice. I'm not trying to negate home practice. Uh, that is tremendously beneficial. But if it's something that you're trying brand new, going and taking a class is, is I think, much more helpful. I've learned plenty. Going to the Home Depot is way different than just watching stuff on YouTube and being yeah, like, right. I can fix the plumbing in my house. No, you can't. Right. No, you can't. <laughs> you need to go take a class first. Yeah. So much more helpful. Yeah. So so much more helpful and insightful than just watching something. And then after I've done it a few times, okay, I can I can try it at home. But I really am a stickler for community practice, whether it's in a studio or a church or a gym or a park or whatever it is. Hmm. But that idea of getting together with other people and having an exchange of ideas, of energy, of breath, of experience. Yeah. Yeah. Steep in it. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so, too. I'm a huge fan. Well, I mean, you asked me my opinion, and that's yeah. it. Other people can have other opinions, but that's mine. Even if they're wrong. Yeah, I mean, they could have wrong opinions. They can have wrong opinions. No, I'm a huge fan of the community, and um, I'm a huge fan of, uh, you know, getting together with other people and opening the patterns of the body and listening to different perspectives. So I think you hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm so appreciative of our time today, Carrie. Thank you. Where um, can people find out more about you? So a uh, couple of different places. Uh, I do have a website. My name is spelled in a really funny way, so it's hard to find. But it's K-A-R-I-K-W-I-N-N.com. Um, that's my website. Um, you can find me, Kindness. I teach in the Golden Studio a couple times a week. Great. Sometimes I sub other places because I like to get out and about. Sure. So you might see me in other places too. But uh, my website's probably the primary place to see what's happening in my world. Carrie, K-A-R-I-K-W-I-N-N.com. Yep. Okay. And I'm on the Instagrams and the Facebooks and all the things. All the places. All the places. Cool. That's cool. awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for your service. Keep uh, being a badass. Well, thanks. I'm working on it. Yeah. Great. Thanks, everybody. See you soon.